keep your Bibles turned to James 4 as we continue our study of the book of James. Throughout the book of James, as we have been walking through the book, uh, James is writing to uh, believers who are under trial and under external pressures, and then because they're under external pressures, the temptation for them to sin is exacerbated. James has already told them, you need to learn to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. We've dealt with slow to speak already. We need to be doers of the word and not hearers only. That's in James 1, uh, 21 to the end of chapter 2. The last two weeks, uh, Pastor Andrew and Pastor Michael have been talking to us about being slow to speak, how to deal with our tongue. In James 4, now James gets to his third main point of his letter, and that is how to deal with anger. And I think it's good that I'm preaching on this because I'm good at this. I was eight years old. I was a believer in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit was living inside me. I grew up in a Christian home. I was living in Detroit, Michigan at the time, and my grandparents came up to see my opening baseball game. I was so excited they were there. Played on this team, I was so excited to be in the uniform, so excited to play. I wanted to win that game very badly because my grandparents were there. My, gran- my granddad didn't make it any easier because every time I came up to the plate, he would yell, if you hit a home run, Tracy, I'll give you $10. And back in 19, you know, middle 70s, $10 was a lot of money. Well, I didn't hit a home run. And we lost the game. And here I was, a believer in Jesus Christ, baptized, Holy Spirit living inside me, and at the end of the game, I was threw down my glove, I was kicking the glove across the diamond, jumping on the, 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 the glove, acting like a complete crazy person. My parents were so proud. <laughs> Thankfully, my grandparents were there, otherwise something worse would have happened to me. Out of control anger because I lost a baseball game at the age of eight. I'll fast forward a few decades. I won't tell the story about me, although I did something like this, but one of my very good friends, very, very strong believer, had four children. The children were, ages were from eight to two. And he was trying to be a good father and teach them about God. He knows now that this might not have been the best idea, but he was working through the Westminster Confession of Faith with his children at the dinner table. One of the children took the bowl of, 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 a bowl of soup and poured it on his sister's head. And again, you remember the Westminster Confession. What is the chief end of man? You know, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. My friend told me he raised his voice. He was screaming at the top of his lungs at his children, at his, um, I guess, the child that poured the soup over their sister's head. And he said, I was the worst example of what it means to glorify God and enjoy him together in that moment. 
why do we do that? Why do we get angry? And now, you know, and some of you introverts, you're going to feel like, no, oh, you're okay, because, you know, it's the extroverts. We're the problem, right? We're the ones who get angry and say crazy things. You introverts are just as bad. You don't say a lot, but you don't need to say a lot. We know when you're angry. You do the little silent treatment. You pout. I had a child like this, never really got angry, but, you know, externally, but internally, you could tell. And the whole house caved in to the gloom and doom and the pouting of that child. You know who you are. Why do we do this? Why do we get angry? And that's what I think James provides an an amazing and profound understanding of what causes anger, and we need to get a handle on that. The text moves around, uh, the text we're looking at this morning, will move around three movements. In the first movement, James is going to tell us what is the real cause of anger. Second movement, he's going to talk about that the causes of this anger are even worse than causing anger. They're actually spiritual adultery. And then in the Third movement of the text, James is going to give us a way out, a pathway forward for us. So let's look, first of all, at this first movement, the causes of anger. And notice in verse 1, he says, what causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? James is trying to tell us that your problem with anger, your problem is not with the people out there that you think are making you angry, the problem is in your own heart. Okay? It's easy to blame your anger on everybody else. It's easy to blame your anger on your circumstances. I had a bad day. I didn't get to sleep last night. You know, I, always, I, mean, I don't feel well. But the problem with anger is in, deeply in your heart. And James says it's because there are these passions, there's these desires that are at war within you. You have a group of desires that are fighting for control of your heart. That's where your anger starts. The problem is not there. It's the problem is not your sister or your brother or your spouse or your coworkers or your bosses or your classmates. The problem is you and me. Now James goes on to say at the heart of anger is this, verse 2, he says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. What James says is that the very heart of anger is you have a desire. You have something that you want to accomplish. You have a goal, a desire, and that desire is blocked. You don't get it. It's stopped. It may be an anti-desire. You don't want these things to happen. And when they do, you get angry. And who do you get angry at? The people who have blocked your desire from being fulfilled. That's really at the heart of anger. You want something, and something gets in the way of that, and that is the heart of why you're angry. You desire and do not have, so you murder. And I don't think he's necessarily saying, you know, that you're literally going to murder, although it could happen that way. James could be referring to the Sermon on the Mount, where murder is not necessarily the physical act. It's what you do in what you think about, what you, you harbor in your heart toward another person. 
You covet, that's a word of desire and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. That is really the heart of anger. Where some desire has been ruling your heart and you don't get that desire and now you're ticked off. So this was my problem when I was eight years old, filled with the Holy Spirit, stomping and kicking my glove across the diamond. My problem was I had a desire. My desire was I wanted to win. Now that's not the worst desire you can have, okay? I wouldn't think a lot of a person if the team got together and says, well, we don't care if we win today. Let's go have fun. But to say you want to win and that is the number one desire in your heart and you don't win, you're gonna get angry. It's terrible. My friend who was doing the Westminster Confession with his kids, he wanted to have a quiet, respectful uh, kids eagerly taking notes on the Westminster Confession. Instead he gets you know, soup poured on the other kid's head. His goal is blocked. That's a good desire, actually. But the desire is being thwarted, and now he's angry. What James is trying to say is, the problem with anger is we have disordered desires. We want things, even we want things that are not bad in and of themselves, but we have made them too important to us. And when we don't get them, we get angry. And that's the nasty little part of anger, right? Sometimes the desires that you don't get that cause the anger, it's not that you have terrible desires. Those are good desires, but they actually are too important to you. you. You haven't rightly ordered those desires in your heart, and you can't help but being anger, angry. James goes on to give a, a few more insights on anger. He, he says in verse Uh, At the end of verse 2, you do not have because you do not ask. This is fascinating. In other words, he's saying sometimes you have a desire and, and you're not getting that desire because you haven't asked God to help you get that desire. This is really fascinating, right? You've got a desire. It's not happening. Now you're angry. But some of the problem is you haven't even bothered to ask God to give you the fulfillment of that desire. I think of parenting a lot when I I think of this. This is a difficult part about parenting. I think all of you who are Christian parents, you want your child to grow up and embrace Jesus. You want your child to grow up and be a responsible human being. You want your child to grow up and if 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 marriage is part of that equation, they marry a strong Christian. You want all of that for your child. That's not a bad desire. But guess what? You can't bring that desire to fulfillment in your own strength. You can't force your kids to be Christians. I know. I tried. My parents tried it with me. It doesn't work that way. And yet how many Christian parents panicked, fearful, because their child is growing up and seems fairly apathetic about Jesus or has major areas of concern where they're not really obeying Christ or maybe they're making poor choices with friends and the parents are so panicked and they're they're angry because they're trying to force the kid to do the right thing when the reality is they probably should be on their knees a lot more 
and a lot less anger because none of that anger is going to produce a Christian kid. James already says earlier, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. And James goes on, he says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. This is another problem with our desire. We have a good desire, it's not bad desire, uh, and maybe we're praying about it, but we've made that desire so important it's like it becomes more important than God himself. It becomes so important to us. We have to have it, and we're treating God as if he's the, the person who's going to make all of our desires take, happen, even the good desires. But it's really not about God. It's really about us getting what we want when we want it. I'll never forget the morning I was taking one of my kids to college. And the night before we went to college, they dyed their hair pink. I was not happy. Now, really, who cares? But I cared. But what did I really care about? Did I really care about my child? that they had, have pink hair and the first you know, introduction to their new school, they would be the, the person with the pink hair. It was about me. I didn't want to introduce myself to all these parents. Hi, this is my child. They're crazy, but you know, here they are. It was me. And I think sometimes we need to be honest, even our good desires that aren't sinful. We want these things so much. And it isn't about God's priorities. It isn't about what he wants. It's about what we want or what we think is best. And so our prayers to God, even in that respect, are selfish, self-absorbed. It's about our agenda, our plans, our goals. So this is the, the first movement James has here is that your anger, it's not the people out there. You think that that, it's you, it's your heart. You've got desires that are disordered. You've got things that you want that are so important to you that if you don't get them, you can't be content. You can't be satisfied. You get angry, and whoever's blocking that goal, you're angry with them. I'll put this out uh, this week on a, on, on a little blog. Right? I, there's, for some of, maybe for most of us, we probably need to kind of think back to the the last time you were angry and answer a couple of questions. I'll send these out. You don't have to write these down, but I'll, I'll send this out to you this week. The, the first thing you ought to say is, what were the circumstances that led to my anger? And then you can kind of blame the people that caused your anger, right? The second thing you need to put down is, what did you do and say when you were angry? And the third thing, and this is the tricky part, is what desire did I have that was not being met that was really at the heart of my anger? And the fourth question is, what desire should have been more important in my heart that would have kept me from being angry? I'll send you that, but we need to analyze that. But that's the first movement. But then James goes deeper. 
James basically says that these disordered desires that, that are the source of your anger, he then says they actually, not only do they cause anger, but they are an evidence of spiritual adultery. Look at verse 4. James says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. In other words, James is saying, you've got these desires. Some of them are even good, but you've made them so important. You are actually making that desire more important than, than God. You're taking something in the world, some pursuit. It may be perfectly legitimate, but that becomes so important that, that God himself is secondary in your heart. In other words, you're in a situation where if you don't get this desire, you can't be content with God. Why? Because God is not the source of your contentment, the source of your peace, the source of your joy. And even if you are praying about this desire, you are asking God to make your desire happen because you can't be content with God plus nothing or Jesus plus nothing. You need Jesus plus the new promotion. You need Jesus plus, uh, you know, uh, uh, some, someone uh, who, who you can go out with and, and start to date. You, you need to get into the right school. Yeah, Jesus is great, but I got to get into the right school. And if I can't do that, if that desire is blocked, I'm angry, I'm frustrated. James says this is an evidence of spiritual adultery. Something other than God is now driving your heart. It's guiding you. It's directing you. It's what you're actually living for. It's not God alone, Jesus alone. I'll find all my satisfaction in him. It's God better help this desire to happen. Otherwise, I cannot be at peace. I cannot have contentment. I cannot have joy. Those are strong words. So it reminds you that, you know, we tend to think of sin as we break a rule. We get a traffic ticket. You know, they write you a traffic ticket. Or in Princeton, you get a parking ticket. Uh, I'm not angry. And we tend to think, okay, we made a mistake. And, 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 and you know, we'll, we'll ask for forgiveness and move on. But actually, all sin, there's a sin beneath the sin. And the sin beneath the sin is something more sinister, even, than the breaking of the rule or God's will. The sin beneath the sin is you've sinned because you put something other than God, other than Jesus, and it rivals and maybe is even more important in that moment than him. Or I can't be content with God or Jesus alone. I need this and this, God and this. And James says that's spiritual adultery. And then he goes on in verse 5 and he says, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? James is saying is that God is jealous for us. And I think that word spirit, I know it's in the small, I mean, it's not capitalized. I think it's the spirit of God. Uh, God is, when he brings us to himself, and in James he said that he, he brought them forth as, as first fruits of his creatures, of his own will. He brought these people into faith in Jesus Christ. And he places that spirit in us because God wants to indwell us and he wants us to give him our full affection, our full devotion. And it's not because God does this because he's some megalomaniac God, right? Demanding our worship, demanding our lives. God knows because he made us and we're made in his image 
that we will only be content as human beings. We will only be at peace as human beings. We can only have joy in human beings when we find that joy in God plus nothing. And so he's jealous over the spirit he has has put in us that that dwells in us and changes us and, and connects us with God because the very presence of God is with us by the power of the Holy Spirit. He wants all of us, all of our devotion, all of our affections and our desires to be rightly ordered to him. He's looking at us with our our best interest at heart knowing that only in God alone, only in Jesus alone, can we find contentment, peace, hope, and joy. So that's the second movement. The disordered desires that we have not only cause anger, but they also are evidence of spiritual adultery. And now James moves to the third movement where he attempts to help us out of this quagmire that we find ourselves in, beginning in verse 6. James says, but he gives more grace. Thank God. God gives us grace. He gives grace to us. Even with our disordered desires, even with our spiritual adultery, he is still pursuing us and making his grace available to us. And it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The whole section here, if if you're going to learn to not be an angry person, if you're going to rightly order your desires, you have to become a person of deep humility. Only when you recognize that God is God and you're not. Only when you recognize that only in God can I be satisfied. and, And I can't be satisfied in any other way, through any other pursuit. Only when we humble ourselves in that regard can we begin to be cured from our anger that occurs when our disordered desires fight for control in our hearts. Now he's going to give some specifics on what humility looks like. Look at verse 7 and 8. He says, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. All of these phrases, submit to God, resist the devil, draw near to God, all of this James is saying is, if you want to get your desires rightly ordered, you've got to reorient your whole life under the authority of God. In a very real sense, I think James would say, you need to begin living out the reality of the first three prayer requests of the Lord's Prayer. Remember when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he says, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. In other words, we want to see the name of God expanded and deepened and honored in the world. And he says, Thy kingdom come. In other words, we, we want to orient ourselves around what Christ's kingdom looks like. We want to see that rule and reign of God happen. Your will be done on, <coughs> excuse me, on heaven as and on earth. We, we want to see... God's will, God's rule take place in our lives and in the world. And until we orient ourselves around those priorities, when that agenda becomes our agenda, when those desires of God are what we embrace and become the highest desires in our heart, only through that can our disordered passions become rightly ordered. And we can deal with anger. 
You just think about it. I mean, I, I hate to say it, but I, you know, and I, looking back at my, my Christian life, too often my prayers are mostly about me. You know, our Father which art in heaven, make sure my reputation, Lord, is deepened and extended to all people. Uh, Lord, bless my agenda. Lord, I'm taking my agenda. I'm praying to you. I'm asking. I'm depending upon you to do what? To make sure that my agenda, my plans, my will is accomplished. And God is so far from those kinds of prayers. We have to reorient ourselves to what God is up to. To what God is doing. I know some of you, you're young. If you're, you know, you're, you're young, and you're, you're, the only way you're going to learn this is through experience. I'm sorry. It's going to be very difficult. I look back at my younger life, and there were so many prayers and desires I had that I thought really seemed pretty good, and God didn't answer them. I had jobs that I, when I was in seminary, before I came to Wesley Road, I, I applied and I thought, oh, this is going to be great. I can see myself in this position. And they called and said no. And I said, what's wrong with you, God? Only to realize later that the no I got was really a wonderful provision of God, but I couldn't see it at the time. I told you, I don't want to tell you more Chick-fil-A stories, but I ended up at Chick-fil-A for a year after being in ministry for 17 years. I thought this would be the worst year of my life. I would not trade that year for anything because God's plans, God's agenda were way uh, bigger than mine. And I was so frustrated with God that I had to be in this place selling chicken with teenagers. There's a youth group selling chicken. That's all Chick-fil-A is. So mad at God, how could you leave me in this place? And yet God knew exactly why I needed to be there. And I'm angry with God, and yet God's doing the very thing it's most needed in my life. And when we begin to value God, the extension of his name, his kingdom, his will, when we begin to trust that God, submit to him, resist the devil and all of his you know, attempts to tempt us to go in other places. When we see what, what, and believe that what's happening to my life, yes, I have a desire that I wanted to have happen and God, it's been blocked. To trust God that in that blocking of that goal, God is still working in you and you can trust him. You don't have to be angry, you don't have to be frustrated. You can have confidence that God is still leading and guiding you, even when you can't see it. Another part of humility is in the end of verse 8. It says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. In other words, when we see our disordered desires, which is spiritual adultery, and we confess us, we need to be honest, we need to say so, we need to cleanse our hands from these desires and this anger that we're involved in. We need to purify our hearts. That word purify means to make sure that you have a single-minded focus in your heart. This is probably all of our problems. We have some desires that aren't bad, but but they're not really the best desires we should have because they're not really about God. They're mostly about us. And so we constantly, our heart wants those things, but we know we need God, and so we're double-minded. 
Purify your hearts, you double-minded. And then he goes on to say, be wretched, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. <laughs> and he, we need to confess. We need to live a life of continual repentance before God. Particularly when we find ourselves angry and realize that our desires were disordered, which is spiritual adultery, constantly repenting and allowing God by his spirit to change us, to purify us, and to reorder our desires. Two things just briefly. For parents, uh, I, I know it's difficult. I mean, I have three kids. They're all out of the house now. I'm not responsible for what they do or say. It, it feels as much. But one of the things I had to learn, very, God had to convict me over and over again. I had this desire, particularly when my kids were very young, and I had this desire that I could come home from work and we would have a peaceful lovely time together as a family where there would be peace and harmony and love and joy. Now that's not an evil desire. It's not. I mean, it would be a little weird if I said, boy, I hope the kids are fighting tonight. <laughs> I can't wait. Yeah. But if that's, <laughs> when that desire was like too high in my heart, when I had an eight-year-old, a four-year-old, and a two-year-old, guess what? There was no peace. There was, there was conflict. I had, I, I, I had to be like the United Nations. I had negotiations. There was accusations of stealing going on. I had to figure out who stole what, when. I had to... You know, and, and, and of course, sometimes I'd get through the night, and then, and then you know, and as the kids got older, I'd find out that we had a science project. I say we, it, it, it was my child's science project, but now we have a science project. And so I'm going to the 24-hour Walmart. Not happy. I had to get rid of that desire and make that desire very low on my list. I had to have God reformulate my desire to say, you know what, I'm coming home and I, I don't know what's going to be there when I get home, but I'm telling you what, what I need to do, my highest goal is I want to serve Jesus by serving my family, whatever they need. When I had that desire, I, 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 was, I was normal. I was a good dad. I listened. I solved conflict. I was loving. I was gracious. Boy, but if that other desire ever cropped up too high, I got mad. I got angry. And that's what James is trying to help us see in his fairly profound psychology of the human heart. One last thing. You'll notice here there's hardly anything about Jesus in here. So I'm worried you're going to walk out and you're going to try real hard to reorder your desires. Some of you obsessive compulsive types are going to write down your desires and you're going to read them to yourself. Only Jesus can help you do this. And think about what Jesus did. Jesus got angry, actually. 
Oh, not about himself so much. He was angry when he was outside the tomb of Lazarus. His nostrils flared, the text says. He was angry that his friend was dead. Well, that's probably legit. He was angry when he went into the temple and found out, you know, it was a marketplace, you know, where they were upselling, you know, animals for the sacrifice. He didn't like that too much. He didn't like it when the disciples shooed the children away. You know, he was concerned about injustice. There's a legitimate way to be God, have godly anger about those things that are contrary to God's will, for sure. But what about himself? Was Jesus angry about himself? I mean, he was on the cross, <laughs> perfectly innocent, and he's dying for your sin and mine. And, and what does he say when they're dividing up his clothes, you know? He says, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. When the high priest slaps him and, and mocks him and falsely accuses him, the text says Jesus didn't utter an angry word in return. When Jesus sees us and all of our foolishness and all of our sin, what did he do? He came all the way out of heaven and died for your sin and mine so that we could be restored to him, so that we could be satisfied in God alone plus nothing. Jesus, in suffering, the indignities on the cross, does not sinfully spew out his anger against that. Why? Because he is fixated on doing his Father's will, which was to come and die as our substitute in order to redeem you and me and the universe. He was fixated with doing his Father's will. And if we could get a little more consistently in that mode, I think we would find ourselves less angry, less spiritual adultery, and be better used to serve our Lord and serve other people around us in a good way. Let's bow our heads in prayer, and I want you to take a minute and just take 30 seconds, and for some of us, we need, we need to maybe spend some time confessing. We need to ask the Lord to reorder our desires in our heart. So just do that on your own.